Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Paula Mazuita Maroa, the founder and executive director of Rukanda Pride, manufacturers of top-end leather products. If you enjoy this conversation, remember to subscribe, to like, and to share. Let's get down to some work. Paula Mazuita Maroa, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you for having me. Explain to me the name Mazuita. I love middle names. What, what does it what, what, what does it represent? Mazuita means thank you. You're right. I guess my grandmother, because she's the one that named me Mazuita, yeah. was grateful that <laughs> God gave them a beautiful child. How many are you in your family? Uh, we are three. Three mm-hmm. girls. I'm the middle child. You're the middle child. Yes. You're 27 years old. I'm 27. I am blown away by what you are doing. Thank you. You manufacture this thing. Yes. I mean, this is this is beautiful. Thank you. Leather products. Yes. You also manufacture this bag and many others. You do belts. Yes. Um, you do uh, wallets. Correct. We will get to that part of your journey, but I want us to go to uh, your beginnings, your job at, uh, you worked at, uh, in Victoria Falls, you worked with uh, Vision Consulting Africa, and you decided to, to quit. Talk to me about the experience of your early journey working, working in Victoria Falls and why you decided I'm going to walk away from this. Okay, so uh, to begin with, the reason why I chose to go to Victoria Falls soon after completing my O-levels was because I needed to help out at home, considering that um, we were orphans. We were orphaned at an early age. I was nine years and my little sister was six. So we were taken to my paternal grandparents' place in Highfields. So when I finished my O-levels, I felt the need to help out at home, considering my little sister was still in school. That's why I had to go to Victoria Falls to look for a job. Actually, my cousin um, employed me there. I was working as a co-agent. So uh, what I'll do there is I'll work and send money back home for the welfare of my little sister. Um, After a while, I realized that the money was not really enough. So again, I made a decision to come back home. But when I came back home, my cousin then hooked me up to another company back in Arare, uh, which is another call agency. So I was doing pretty much the same thing. So you are an orphan. You lost your mother and father. Correct. Talk to me about that. Um, Well, my mother was a single mom. I never really had um, time with my father. So she passed on in 2006. You were nine years old. I was nine then. Um, That's just where 
everything began because then we were then taken to my grandparents and life then became different because now it's different parenting style. You get to learn different things. And because my parents were divorced, we didn't really have a relationship with my father's side of the family. So it's like we were learning each other. So it was pretty hard, but adaptable. And then your father passed on too? My father passed on first. Okay. Yes, but then there wasn't really much of a difference because we were already staying with just our mom. And you went to stay with your grandparents where? In Highfields. Highfields. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, like I mentioned, it was different because when my parents divorced, I think it wasn't a peaceful divorce. So we never really had a good relationship with my father's side of the family. So going there after my mother passed on was something new to us because we were going there and we had to learn what another way of living, mm. something that was different from what we were doing with our mom. Mm. With that kind of um, upbringing, when you look back, what lessons, good or bad, did you get from this upbringing? You're losing your parents, you're young, your parents get divorced, you don't spend time with your father, and you eventually you know, are raised by your grandparents. Um, I think one lesson that I can draw from that is that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always your parents that will bring you up. And whenever you go to stay with a different person, it's always advisable to quickly learn what they want so that there are no <laughs> problems. You don't become a burden in their lives. I like you. You quickly learn what they want. True. Because you're living with them, isn't it? Yes. And um, is grandmother still alive? No, she passed on, sadly. So she never got to see the kind of work that you do? Oh, she never did. Mm. She never did. And when did you start sensing that you had this gift to do what you're doing? From a very young age. I How like, young? I think from when my mother was alive. Because my mother was a hustler. Mm. She was a corporate woman. But again, she was a hustler because she needed to take care of three girls on her own. So I, I think that anchored the entrepreneur in me. I could see that, okay, my mother is an independent woman and she can do this. She's hustling. So that to me paved a way for my entrepreneurial journey because sometimes we were forced to help her. I would like to say forced because at that time, mom would give you no choice. You were forced to go and help and her. And what out. was she hustling doing? What was her hustle? She would sell different stuff. Hmm. So my mother would go to Mozambique to get different stuff to sell. She never really had one hustle. So for me to then say, oh, my mom was in this kind of trade, it's actually hard to say that hmm. because she would do different things really. So sometimes she would bring stuff and then she would make us pack everything or she would, whenever she's going for her deliveries, we would help out and everything like that. So you, you say that you, when you went to Vic Falls and then you came back, you looked at fashion as a way of uh, survival. Talk to me about that approach to life. Okay, so 
when we were staying in Highfield yeah. with my grandparents, we were staying with my aunt as well, my father's sister. So she had a flea market. So because I was, we were additions to the family, I always felt like, okay, I needed to help out. So I would go to the flea market because the school that I went to, we would hot seat. I don't know if you know what hot seat is. Mm, I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two so, classes or three exactly. classes. Uh, same chair. Exactly, exactly. So what we would do is whenever I was meant to go to school in the afternoon, I would go to the flea market in the morning. Whenever I was How meant to go. How old were you then? Um, soon after I went to Highford, I was around 19. 19. Yes, meaning my selling skills are 17 years now. <laughs> <laughs> 17 okay. years of experience in right. selling. Anyway, so we would go, I would go to the flea market in the morning when I was meant to go to school in the afternoon. Then I would go to the flea market in the afternoon. No, vice versa. Mm. I would go to, to the flea market in the afternoon when I, when I was meant to go to school so in, in the, the morning. morning. Yes. So my aunt used to sell babies, baby way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I came back from Victoria Falls, I understood baby way better than anything else. So I ventured into the very same thing. I just got myself a passport. Then I my first trip was Messina because that's what I could afford at that time. So I went to Messina. I think I would get my stuff from Pep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because it was cheaper. cheaper. Yes. So I would get my stuff from Pep, come back, sell as much as I could because now when I came back, I had to take my little sister. By the way, my little sister at one point, me and my little sister were separated. She then went to my mother's side of the family Mm -hmm. and I remained at my father's side of the family. So when I came back, I didn't have the power to say, I'm taking my little sister so that I can take her back to Mm -hmm. my father's side. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a decision to just take her in and stay with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was 17, by the way. Wow. Yes. So now because I had my little sister's school fees, I had our upkeep, rentals, I had to work hard. I had to juggle between the business and the job. Mm -hmm. I'm drawn to your saying that early in your life, you had this drive to help. Nine, ten years old, you want to help your sister. Talk to me about that and where it comes from and what it feels like. I think helping out in the beginning, it felt like I was obliged to. Mm-hmm. Until I, it just started to feel like, oh, I have to because it's my sister. If I don't, then who will? And just really knowing that we were additions to the family they never had a relationship with us, but they took us in. So I felt the need to help. Hmm. What what has that done to your outlook to business, to life? I mean, nine years old, you are jokingly saying you have 17 years experience, (laughs) but that's the reality of 17 years of experience. What has that done to your approach to business, to your approach to life? Well, I think... I always say that my ultimate purpose in life is to uplift as I climb. Mm. I do this because as I was growing, I mean, someone took me in when I was, when I had just finished my O-levels. And as much as I passed, I, because I chose to 
work and take care of my little sister. I didn't have any experience. The only experience that I had was selling in the streets mm. at the flea market. But someone took me in in their corporate, taught me how to handle their clients over the phone. That means then they trusted me with little to no experience. So I always give chances to people like me because I know what it feels like not to have. I know what it feels like not to be experienced, but needing the job. And being given an opportunity. And being given an opportunity. Do you remember who gave the people that gave you those opportunities, the people that opened doors for you so that we honor them as we have this conversation? Yes, definitely. Some Please of do. them do not like to be mentioned. <laughs> really? Yes. Okay, well, yeah. let's mention those who... Um, I think the first person that... The first people that I would mention that gave me the first chance are my relatives my grandparents, my aunt, everyone that took part in my upbringing. Uh, I wasn't really a Gogo's child. I was everyone's child. Mm. So that means this time I'm staying with my grandparents, the next time I'm staying with my other aunt, the next time I'm staying with my uncle. So I really want to honor those people because they played a part in mm. my life. Mm. And uh, obviously my cousin, Leonora, who took me in in Victoria Falls with nothing just my o level and uh the people that continue to pave the way for me in my entrepreneurial journey i always honor them some of them do not like to be mentioned <laughs> it takes a village as you say yes. um we're gonna take a break here and when we come back we're gonna get into this beautiful work that you are you are doing here so uh Please don't go away. Join us on the other side when we get into the nitty-gritties of what uh, Paula is doing. I was inexperienced. Okay. I needed the money at that time, and I didn't. I hadn't learned. Hello, my name is Trevor Ngove, the host of In Conversation with Trevor. I'm here to invite you to join us for the Ideas Festival Conference at the Troutbeck Hotel in Nyanga from the 22nd to the 24th. Last year on December 9, we had a successful launch of the Ideas Festival where Yvonne Chaga Chaga, Tinyashi Nyamudoka, and Stafford Massey inspired a room full of movers and shakers. So why should you join us? We passionately believe that for any society to develop, it does so on the back of a vibrant marketplace of ideas. We have an engaging program for you and a network group of people in the room. We have an engaging program that includes ideas panels, fireside chats, master classes, an ideas tank, and an ideas dinner. You can't afford not to be in this network group of people. See you at the Troutbeck Hotel in Nyanga. Welcome back to our conversation with Paula Mazwita Maroa, the founder and executive director of Rukanda Pride, manufacturers of high-end leather products. So, Paula, let's get down to business. You manufacture this stuff. You manufacture the shoes, like I said, um, and a lot more other things. And you've called your company Rukanda Pride. First of all, the name Rukanda. 
Uh, Rukanda means leather. Aha. Yes. Okay. Ganda. It comes from Ganda, but I just really My Shona is not very good, as you can see. Oh, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Rukanda means leather. Mm-hmm. Then um, combining the word pride, I just wanted it to come out as the pride of the African leather. Mm-hmm. Yes. And talk to us, take us to that place where this idea begins to simmer and boil and bubble under inside of you, and then it expresses itself the way it's done. Where does it actually start and how? So when I was doing the baby wear, I was a cross-border at that time. I was a teenager. I had gone to do a delivery in Chitumbiza. Then when I was coming back, I met... Um, I stumbled upon an old, well, not really old, but someone who was now doing something out of a hobby. Mm -hmm. His name is Mr. Stolle. He was making shoes under a tree at his house. So the entrepreneur in me was triggered because under normal circumstances, what you see is someone repairing shoes, especially in places like Shungwiza, Highfield and everything. It was new to me to see someone actually really designing a shoe mm. and then do the production up until, you know, it's a complete shoe. I was quite impressed. Then I decided I was, I was like to myself, listen, I can make money with him because I realized that, okay, he's just making these shoes, but I don't think he's doing so much in terms of marketing the product, you know. So I went to him. Uh, we had a conversation. Well, word of mouth, <laughs> nothing was signed. We had an agreement. Mr. Stoley, what I'm going to do is I'm going to market these products. You produce, we sell to the client. So it's honestly safe for me to say I, to say I started with nothing. So I started taking pictures off the internet, which was one of my biggest, biggest mistakes. So I took pictures from the internet. I would post and market and tell people, oh, we make shoes, right? (laughs) So people started coming in. So what I would say is because we make these shoes and we want your commitment, you need to give us a deposit Mm -hmm. as a way of showing commitment. Mm -hmm. So... The clients would give me a deposit. I would use it as cost of production. I would go and give Mr. Stoley. He buys the raw materials, labor and everything. When he's done with the shoes, I would go collect, deliver to the client. The balance would be my profit. Mm -hmm. So we carried on like that until the client started to see a difference. To say, this is what you post. (laughs) This is what you're delivering. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So what you were posting and what you were delivering were two different things. Totally different. Why did you do that? I was inexperienced. Okay. I needed the money at that time. And I didn't, I hadn't learned. It was my first time getting into this kind of business. Remember, I was used to just getting clothes that are ready made mm-hmm. and selling. That was quite easy. But now having to market something that's made locally, that you are portraying that you have made. And then selling. And because Sekuru didn't have any pictures, I, did ha- I didn't have any choice. And normally the kind of leather that you find locally and what we see on the internet. On the internet, it's usually pictures that are edited yeah. and everything like that. So I didn't know at that time. <laughs> 
to the point that at one point I was actually posted on name and shame as the <laughs> on a page called name and shame. Wow. But now that was a fast forward. But um, whilst I was doing shoes, we recognized a need for belts mm. because now the clients would say, listen, I love the shoe. Well, the design would be nice. Mm. They would complain to say, but it's not as shiny as you say, but it's nice. You know, it's nice. Then they would just take sometimes, some, sometimes out of pity, sometimes out of, oh, okay, anyway, it's nice. I'll just take it. So as I was marketing the shoes, uh, someone different approached me and said, I make um, belts, wallets, bags, and everything. And I was like, really? Because I'm in need of belts right now. So I said, okay, make a sample for me. Again, we got into an agreement. Um, he would do the same the same agreement I had with Mr. Stoley. I would just get deposits from clients and then um, I would give him mm. then the balances were my profit. Mm. So we carried on like that until one day um, a client ordered a bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, again, another what I ordered with what I got. It's like I hadn't really learned my lesson with the shoes because no one really had come to me with that kind of approach. So this client wasn't happy. She didn't come to me. That's when she went on name and shame. Wow. She posted and she wasn't really happy. Honestly, that really almost took me out of business. I was demotivated. I was like, maybe this is not for me. First of all, I'm not the one making these things, but I'm now being the one bashed and everything. So maybe let me leave it. But then I realized that I remembered the reason why I was doing it. I looked at my little sister. We needed the money. Then I woke up, dusted myself, and I was like, I'm going to start over. You remembered the why. I remembered the why. I dusted myself and I was like, I'm going to start over if I have to. Mm. Contacted the client, apologized to her. I gave her a refund. It was hard at that time because every cent counted. And to give a client her money back was the hardest decision. But then I had to do it. So then I talked to the guy that that was making the bags then. We corrected the mistake. This time I took swatches with me. Then I told her, this is the letter that we get. Choose, because we're still going to make it back for you. Then she chose. So now I delivered exactly what I had promised. I asked her, don't remove the post. Yeah. Go below the post in the comment section. Just tell the people that we made the correct back and you're happy about it. Because she had offered, oh, okay, fine, I'm going to delete the post because you finally made something that I really want. And I said, no, don't do it. Because people are still going to have that perception of us. I would rather you go back to the post and just tell them that, okay, we have made something different because mistakes happen. She went, she did that. And out of that, we actually got a lot of clients. That brought me back. That gave me a new lease of life in this leather business. Mm. So now I had realized my mistakes. I went on the page, deleted every internet picture that I had ever posted. Now I had learned that when before you deliver anything, you take pictures and post exactly what you produce. So that was, I think, one of my first business decisions. Well, not really first, but like I think the hardest decision I had to make. But then that came out 
mm. better for me in the end. Well, what, what, I mean, you've already hinted at the lessons. I mean, that's a tough lesson, isn't it? It's True. a costly lesson. It was. Of uh, how not to do business. What, 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 how would you expand on the lessons to the viewers at home uh, from what you get for, got from these two mistakes that you, their mistake that you repeated, you repeated. What lessons come out of that? I think for someone who is... Or maybe before you share that, I will share, it's an opportunity for me to share. We we were trying to expand this place that we are we are in. And we saw on the internet, somebody was doing amazing offices. And we looked, wow, beautiful offices of the garden. Called the young man, uh, come, let's, uh, you know, uh, show us what you can do and stuff. And long and short of it is we discovered that his advert in the magazine was uh, a copy and spade, uh, uh, copy and, and, and paste from the internet. I wonder how many young people are doing that. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, I broke a stride as you were sharing uh, the lesson from, from this kind of thing. What are the lessons? I think the first lesson is whenever you decide to get into manufacturing, if you really want to protect your brand, then you need to be authentic. You need to sell exactly what is there because then you will disappoint the client and that will damage the brand. Have you recovered? Yes. Fully recovered? Fully recovered. Right. I started actually recovering from that post. Mm -hmm. So this was before Rukanda Pride got into its own manufacturing. Right. I was just still dealing with people that would make the products for me and I would deliver to the mm. clients and everything. So this was in 2017. 2018, I decided to formalize the business. And I intentionally called it Rukanda Pride for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so in 2018, uh, I carried on with the same way of operation. And uh, 2019, now because these are products and people really want to see samples, mm. I felt the need to open a store. Mm -hmm. But I was inexperienced in this kind of business. I went and I opened a shop in Masasa Day. <laughs> somewhere my target market wouldn't come. But because I hadn't done enough research, I just thought opening a store was what was needed at that time. Again, it was a mistake because I wasted money on rentals, on the boards, on everything really. But then people wouldn't come. Now that means that shop was now a liability because we would just pay rentals, but mm. still do deliveries, mm. still go to meet the clients in town for them to view the products. So I, I realized there's no need for this shop. People kept complaining, no, it's too far. We can't come there. It was disheartening for me. And because I had felt like, oh, I have achieved something. Mm. I have a shop. Can you imagine? <laughs> What lesson did you learn from that mistake? I think don't rush, especially when you're into business. Uh, there's something called calculated risks. You know, do your research. Who's my target market? Will they come here? Is there enough packing? All of that, you need to consider a lot of things before just doing things for the sake of doing things. You have learned the hard way, eh? I have. I have almost all my life. I always call myself a learning leader. I am a learning leader. Every chance I get, I draw my lessons and I carry on. Some mistakes can take you out of business. True. 
Are you aware of that? True. And are you ready for that? Never ready for that, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> no one is ever ready to yeah. go out of business, but we always that's why we always try to correct our mistakes yeah. as much as we can and yeah. as quick as we can. Yeah. I suppose when I'm saying, are you ready for that? Um, um, it's, a, it's a way of saying, has experience taught you enough to be able to avoid getting out of oh, business? Yes, definitely. Right. Definitely. Let's get into your products. What do you manufacture? Shall we just give the audience, I mean, you have uh, these bags. What else do you do? This is a lovely, lovely bag. Thank you. Thank you very much. What else do you do? Uh, so our product portfolio um, ranges from bags, briefcases, wallets, belts, shoes, wine holders, um, corporate folders, key rings, and a whole lot of stuff. Our latest offering actually are leather portraits, mm-hmm. something that I find unique because these kind of portraits do not lose value. Mm-hmm. You can your picture will stay like that forever because we always say that leather has a lifetime guarantee. Yeah. So imagine engraving your picture on a leather piece, something that is going to stay forever. You've manufactured this? Yes. So where do you manufacture? Okay, so we are located in Isley. Mm-hmm. Our office is right number four, Caithness Road. That is where we're doing both the manufacturing and the administration of Rukana Pride. And um, t- talk to me, or maybe let's take a break now. When we come back, I want you to talk us through your creative process, what you, how you decide to manufacture uh, one piece or the other. So please don't go away. Join us as we get into more details about how uh, Paula manufactures her products. So I now have the machines, I have the raw materials, I have the tools, I have everything, but where do I get people to work with? Welcome back to our conversation with Paula Mazwita Marowa, founder and executive director of Rukanda Pride, manufacturers of uh, fine leather products. Let's go to, where do you go to school? Um, I learned at different primary schools. I learned at um, Southerton Primary School when my mom was alive. Then when we moved to Marundera, I went to Godfrey Huggins. Then when I came back uh, to Harare, when I was now staying with my grandparents after my mother passed on, I went to Mtasa Primary, mm-hmm. which is where I then got up to grade seven. Mm-hmm. From there, I went to Highford High One. Mm-hmm. Form one. Form one, two, four. Okay. And then I could not continue because of the need to take care of my little sister. Mm-hmm. But um, fast forward, I then uh, did a diploma in office administration with the Institute of Administration and Commerce. Mm -hmm. And I am looking into doing law because it's always been my childhood dream. Wow. Yes. Wow. Awesome. What do you think your education taught you? I mean, you went as far as Form 4, but you've done amazing things. (laughs) There are graduates who've not been able to do what you've done, what what do you think your education has taught you, your formal education taught you? 
to be very honest, mm-hmm. maybe maybe the diploma in office administration yeah. really just taught me a little bit about business etiquette, you know. Sometimes you don't, because remember, I am coming from the streets, from the flea market. <laughs> you That does not apply in the corporate world, and I am dealing with corporates most times. So, yeah, that really helped me with business etiquette, how you communicate with be it your clients, your subordinates, your suppliers, and all of that. So I would say that taught me, and maybe my high school really cemented my leadership skills because I was in the junior parliament and I was um, Zimbabwe junior ambassador to the UN. So because we would speak um, and debate a lot of topics, really that I think that cemented my leadership skills. Mm. But it looks like, correct me if I'm wrong, that your biggest education has come from the University of Life. True. <laughs> not I guess very so. True. true. <laughs> oh, yes. Not I guess so. <laughs> true. Very true. Talk to me now about, before we took the break, we, we I did hint that we, we just go to how you decide to make stuff, the inspiration, the motivation, the creative uh, process. Talk to me about that. Is Mr. Stoller still with you? Well, here and there, remember okay. he was old. So I like to call myself an inclusive leader. Mm-hmm. I don't make decisions alone when it comes to products because I think for us to even begin production, we started soon after COVID yeah. because we made money in COVID. Yeah. Yeah. What we were doing COVID was I realized that, okay, I need money. And now everything is closed. So I carried on with marketing Mm -hmm. and I realized, okay, so delivery companies are allowed to move around, Mm -hmm. but I'm not. Mm -hmm. How about I get into business with them? So I got into partnership with a delivery company during COVID, Mm -hmm. the entirety of the COVID era. So remember the people that I was working with, Mr. Stole and the other guy who would do the wallets, belts and everything, we're working from their houses. Mm So the delivery guys in the morning, they would come to my house. We would have a meeting. I would make sure that they have their sanitizers and everything that was needed. Mm. So they would go collect deposits from clients. Mm-hmm. And at that time, competition was less mm-hmm. because most shops are closed. So your birthdays, your celebrations, your gifting and everything, Valentine's, I made sure we're operating. So he would just go collect deposits from clients, mm. write a receipt, mm. go to Mr. Stolenstungiza, collect the shoes, deliver to client, get the money, mm. bring to me. Mm. So the rest of the COVID, we operated like that. Wow. That means after COVID, I was able to buy machines. I was now able to open a store somewhere the target market would actually really come. Where is the store? Uh, it was by Corner Samura and Enterprise okay. then. Um, You've moved it. Yes, we have. We've got bigger now? offices now uh, for Caithness. Okay. Yes. So that's when we then started production, production. So when I started, you know, leather products are something that you don't just wake up and make. Mm-hmm. And you don't just find anyone who can make leather products. So I now have the machines, I have the raw materials, I have the tools, I have everything. But where do I get people to work with? And for me to then go to these people and say, let's work together. Because that was 
the initial plan. Yeah. I thought I would convince them to say, how about Mr. Stole and your team, you come mm -hmm. and I get the other guy to come and then we're like one big family. Mm -hmm. You know, considering now we have better machines, we have better raw materials and everything, but none of them <laughs> were <laughs> excited to hear about that. Wow. I actually realized that I now look like competition. Oh, now you want to make on your own. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit hard. And you know, to wow. Mr. Stole, I had, because we, we were marketing these shoes, and he was slow in production. I decided to get two guys that could help him. You know, it wasn't much at that time, but I realized that we actually made a difference in these guys' lives because we took them off the streets. They now had some sort of leaving out of it. So, and you know, there was now transgenerational transfer of skills from Mr. Stole to these guys. So they, now, they were now able to make the shoes but for me to then convince them to come, now they were like Mr. Stoller's babies. So it really took me time. But you know, Mr. Stoller being an old man, he was like, listen, I really don't have anything against you. You've helped me. We've worked together for a long time. Take these guys with you. At the end of the day, you're the one that gave them to me. So they came. And I think one of the first people that I worked with was a guy called Michael. I always talk about him. Michael was 17, turning 18 at that time when he came to me and he said, I need a job. I don't know how to do anything. I can even be a cleaner. I took him in, not because I needed him at that time, because I didn't even know what he was going to do, mm. but I needed to give him an opportunity because I remembered someone gave me an opportunity when I was just like him. So he came in and when he came in, uh, I had bought a heat stamp. So it, it's the one that does this. Mm. Yes. So I was like, okay, Michael, what I need you to do is to arrange the letters. Do that for now. But I think because he was ambitious, he wanted something better than that. But he had no one to teach him. So fortunately, someone connected me to, he's our manager right now. His name is Nkosi. Nkosi came. Nkosi could do everything else except stitching. And you know, it's the cornerstone of our production process. There's nothing that you can do without the stitching. You mm. can do the assembling and everything, but it will not be a shoe without the stitching. It will not be a bag or anything else. Mm. So Nkosi, um, but he had an idea of what stitching is, what you do. He just didn't have the precision. Mm. Guess what Michael did? Mm -hmm. He taught himself. Oh, wow. When I was out there looking for a stitcher, I think it, it took him two days because he was doing it manually. He made sure that his, his stitches are straight and everything. Then they called me, come and see. I'm thinking, what happened? Because I wasn't there. I was always out there looking for clients. I went to the workshop. Our first workshop was <laughs> a small room that uh, it was horrible, but that's where we started. Small beginnings. Humble beginnings. So... When they called me in, I went, I was worried. I'm getting there. I'm seeing Michael was stitching. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy. Pleasantly surprised. Elated. I was so happy. And then I was like, so guys, can you make something? I actually really want to see. Mm. He carried on stitching. Now he's actually our main stitcher. And which are your biggest products and who are your clients roughly? Uh, I think our fast moving products are wallets, belts, and shoes. Okay. 
But when it comes to corporates, now we're looking at bags, file holders, key rings, wine holders, mm -hmm. especially when we're getting into the festive season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So every other thing is just really in the middle. Wine holders. Wine holders. Interesting. And these briefcases? Yes. Are they moving? Yes, they are. Very durable, eh? Hey? I yes, mean, you buy definitely. one that's, uh, it lasts, lasts forever. 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 You can even pass it on, hey? Mm. Yes. And um, when you look at the, our environment, um, what is it that you think would help the growth of your business right now? What do you need most? One, in terms of the, the, the police environment and for your business to to get to the next level. Because clearly, Mr. Stoller was for a season. Yes. And um, then you get to another season and you are in a different season now. And Definitely. from what you from what you're saying and listening to you, what's the next thing? I think what we need the most right now is funding, patient capital, capital. at concessionary rates. Mm -hmm. Because um, sometimes I think as small entrepreneurs, okay, growing, growing businesses. It, yeah. <laughs> As growing businesses, businesses yes. you get to a point where bootstrapping is a slow way of growth. You need funding. And um, because banks sometimes require collateral that we don't even have, I wish there was a win-win situation where corporates or the government or the international community would integrate small businesses into their supply chain, mm. um, give them capital, or rather support them, not just in terms of funding, but also capacity building. Because sometimes you can get a big order, you can't finance it. And then when you try to get order financing, sometimes payments come in late. You're already under pressure. You know, So what we need the most right now is patient funding. Have you gotten any loan from a bank? No. No. The growth of Rukanda has been solely relying on bootstrapping. But you're doing amazing things. Thank you very much. Things which ordinarily, I mean, I'm not a banker, but should not <laughs> should be bankable. I mean, I am very critical of our banking sector. Um, but I suppose it says that we need, uh, like you're saying, you know, we need patient capital. We True. need um, capital that understands startups yes. and is passionate about startups True. the banks we have at the moment um more bean counters than anything else and unfortunately yes. um what's the next big thing for you what what is it that you'd want to achieve okay so personally like i said i want to continue to grow personally so i am going to enroll myself into law school now, I'm saying that for everyone to hear so that I'll be held accountable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And uh, for the business, uh, I think the, the plans that we have are to slowly let go of retail. Retail is slow. It's stressing. We want to get into B2B, B2G mm. and export mm -hmm. because I think that's where the real money is. We obviously want to get into exotic skins mm -hmm. because I think that's what really attracts them. What are exotic skins? Your game skins. Okay. Your crocodile? elephant skin, crocodile, elephant. yeah. Okay. So that's exactly where we are trying to go. We also would want to see um, our products in at least one shop in most of our 
airports. Right now we are in partnership with Liam and Co. It's a duty-free shop mm-hmm. at the RGM International Airport. Do you have an idea what how how big a check would change your life? Definitely. How much? I think a hundred thousand right now. It's so that we can get machinery that makes our process faster. We need to get automated machines because right now, whenever we get a big order, it means people are going to work. We off, we usually call it a marathon production where we work day, night, day, night because we are trying to beat the lead do time. Do you have the orders? We do get them, mm-hmm. obviously, because this is a niche market. It's not always... Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it's very low. Sometimes it's at the peak. Mm. So whenever it's at the peak, we always take advantage of that. We want to get as much orders mm. as we can get. What machines do you want? Uh, automated stitchers. Mm-hmm. We need automated cutters because that is where most of our time is taken. It's cutting, assembling, and stitching. Mm. Yes. So if we get automated machines that make the process faster, it means now we can feed both the local and the international market. We can produce, first of all, better quality to in a faster um, time. Yeah. How many people do you have working for you now, working with you? Right now, we're, we are eight, okay. including myself. Mm-hmm. And what machines do you have at the moment? We have about 10 stitching machines. Mm-hmm. We have a laser engraver, which does the, all the engraving that you see. Mm-hmm. We have skiving machines. Um, yeah, I think that's basically what, you, what we have. And um, you have gotten a number of awards. Um, ZNCC Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2002. Forbes Africa 30 and 30 list. Zimtred uh, Eagle Nest Best Value Edition, and Young Indie Sadak Top, Top Innovator. What do these awards mean to you? I think it's more of validation because remember where I'm coming from. Sometimes I suffer from imposter syndrome. So when you realize that, oh, I'm actually being recognized, I think I'm doing a great job. <laughs> it gives some sort of validation and confidence that, oh, I'm in the right path. Mm. Yes. And it have has any of these awards opened doors for you? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Especially the Zim Trade one, because then um, I think that's when some corporates started to really mm. appreciate the work say oh okay you know because zim trade is an export energizing company so they're like okay so if zim trade can say you are this good you know best value edition it means we can work with you so it really did open some doors for me definitely this gives gives me an opportunity to speak to um young people out there awards are fantastic but paula there's a scandal of awards at the moment Mm-hmm. Um, young people stay away from certain awards. <laughs> um, my team does not want me to mention some of these companies, which are coming up with all sorts of awards. Mm-hmm. Be proud of what you've done. True. If a company asks you to pay to receive an award, that's not an award. Right. And there's a lot of people that are doing that. I've been approached to pay ten thousand dollars to receive an award, and I said I'm not doing that. <laughs> Okay. Who should be paid. Exactly. <laughs> but people are paying out there to get awards. I mean, 
for me, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of companies. When I see a young person say they've got an award from these companies, I'm not interested in mm. you. You're not serious about your brand. Mm. Um, a bre- a, an award should be uh, from credible institutions, True. reputable institutions, like. and you should not accept a, an award from a company that wants you to pay to receive an award. But you know, sometimes as young entrepreneurs, we don't know that, eh? Now you know it. Now we know. <laughs> <laughs> now you know it. Yeah. Um, talk to me about times of crisis. Times when this lady shames you, names you and shames you. How do you deal with crisis? How do you deal with failure? How, how do you look at failure and crisis? I think I always remember the why. Hmm. Why am I doing this? It used to be just about me and my little sister, but now I have a team of people behind me. Your why has expanded? My why has expanded. I know that, okay, if I dwell on this failure and decide to quit, what are these people going to do? What kind of impact would I have put in their lives if I just wake up and say, I'm leaving. This is it. We're quitting. Mm -hmm. All of you go back home. You know, it's no longer just about me. So I always remember the why and I always dust myself up, find a way to make things work through Mm -hmm. that crisis. Mm -hmm. Do you have a process of reflecting on that why or how do you make sure you don't stray stray do you have a place that you go do you you have a ritual what do you do how do you what do you do that to be very honest with you if there is one place that is so serene for me it is the workshop Uh aha those guys make me happy i promise you our workshop is like one happy place wow. even if you come today you'll be like oh my god i want to <laughs> i'm going to be visiting i'm going to be visiting you should definitely so whenever i'm stressed most times i just get into the workshop it's always fun in there those guys are always laughing the point that sometimes when i get in there and they're quiet i get very worried mm. i want to know who had a fight with who what's going on in mm. here you know mm. Mm. Are you exporting anything now? Not yet, even though we do have an export plan. Mm. We obviously want to start with Sadiq countries mm. because of logistical reasons and because we would want to take advantage of the free trade agreements. Mm. Yeah. You know, I love, I'm sure you can see it, but I'm, I'm so excited talking to somebody like you, somebody who makes real stuff. I keep on saying that. Um, uh, Northern Bingas, who have made lots of money, but you can't exactly tell how they made that money yeah. this really excites me your story is a great is going to be a great inspiration um, to a lot of people but i must ask you this help us understand how with the difficulties that you've had in growing up you haven't gone to yale and to harvard but you're doing amazing things some people will say to you, some young people, 27-year-olds, will say to you, you don't have a father. I didn't have a father. I don't have a mother. I didn't go to school. Therefore, this is what I am. And I'm going to sit here and mourn and cry. What do you say to those people? I think I always say that your past should never define what your tomorrow is. It's really up to you. Your life is in your hands. It's honestly and entirely up to you to make a difference. 
And I believe in eating what we kill, hey? Because especially as a woman and as a girl child, if you sit there and mourn and say, oh, I need help. Because obviously when you're just sitting there, what you're going to look for is just, can you please give me some money? And sometimes it doesn't come cheap. You end up wasting your life over something that you could have just done with your own life. You know, I would rather someone says, okay, I make a dollar a day and I'm making a living out of it, you know, and then grow out of that than to say, okay, I'm waiting for this person to give me money today. If they're not there, if they don't show up, I have to look for another person, you know. Now it's like you're putting your life at risk. Uh, so my advice will always be like, get up, girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if I push back and say, you're saying that because you're lucky, you've gotten a break. What would you say? Talk to me. Talk which back. Break? Which break did I ever get in my life? Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've had it hard. I still have it hard. Which break? Mm-hmm. I never had, I've never had any type of funding. I've never had any type of financial help or anything. I've had, sometimes I would leave Chitunguiza at 3 a.m. waiting for orders because I would need to go to work in the morning. Mm-hmm. So there's no lack in there. Get up, girl. Get up, girl. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced the environment of doing business as a 27-year-old young woman? Have you experienced discrimination? Have you experienced uh, the tough side of being a woman in a market that's predominantly male-dominated? Have you experienced it? And if you have, what does it look like? Uh Obviously, it comes with a, I think the most, the hardest thing for me as a woman, as a young woman in a male-dominated industry is sometimes people don't just take you seriously. They're like, what do you mean you make shoes? You're a girl. Where do you know making shoes from? You know? So it takes a lot of convincing to actually say, no, we manufacture these things. And sometimes really just having these men look down upon you, you know? But, hey, <laughs> I believe in domination. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a story. What a story. I mean, you, you have inspired me. Thank you. Um, your work inspires me. Your work speaks for itself. You're authentic. You've made mistakes. You've copied stuff on the internet. We <laughs> paid for it. <laughs> Let's turn to books now um, um, and, and, and share with us. Do you have any three books that you've read that have helped? Do you read books? I try. You try? Sometimes I'm a learning leader, <laughs> like I said. So, <laughs> what because, books have you read that you'd want to share? Uh, I think the first one would be Zero to One by Peter Till, mm-hmm. which talks about domination mm-hmm. and never really... Uh, taking into consideration that you have competition. There's nothing called competition. There's always something called domination. Mm. 
And so you're uh, out to dominate, girl? I am, uh, I am here to dominate. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's a book I've read and I've bought a copy for a couple of uh, copies for a couple of people. It's a beautiful book. It is. It's really, it is. yeah, fantastic, great book. Right. And uh, the second one would be Robin Sharma's 5 a.m. Club. Mm. Um, that one has helped me a lot because literally I wake up before 5 because obviously I want to pray and dedicate my day to the Lord. Uh, because I'm very big on faith. But um, I think my key takeaway on that was the 20-20-20 rule, where you dedicate your 20 minutes on self-reflection, your other 20 minutes on exercise, which uh, sometimes <laughs> don't really happen. Okay, <laughs> and okay. then obviously the last 20 into planning your day. Mm. Yes. And then the third one is my current read, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Mm. And it basically talks about leadership not being inherited. Mm. It is learned. It's a learning curve. You're constantly learning as a leader. Wow. Paula, talking to you has been very inspiring. Uh, your lessons are authentic. You've made costly mistakes. You've recovered. Um, I have no doubt that you are going places. Thank that you. you are going to dominate, girl. Remember what Peter Thiel says in that book, that if you're going to dominate, your technology ought to be different, it ought, to be, ought to be unique. So um, we wish you all the very best with uh, this beautiful work that you're doing. Um, you've come from a very tough environment, but you've been raised by a village. May the village continue to raise you. True. May you continue to be obedient to what the village says, eh? Thank you. Thank you so much for coming across. Thank you for having me, Trevor. Wonderful. Allow me to turn now to our viewers who are all over the world to say thank you so much for following the show. Remember, we are a weekly show. We are out on YouTube uh, every Mondays at uh, 7 a.m. Central African time. To ensure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, remember to subscribe, to like and share. We see your comments. Uh, we read all of them and we try to respond sometimes, uh, keep them coming. We have gone a step further and create and put all our content on uh, our website for your uh, viewing and listening pleasure. We've got podcasts there. Go to our website, click on the podcast for your listening pleasure. Thank you for your support. Until next time, cheers to you all. Mm -hmm.